This is an area where we need to work together to continue our appeal to government to be heard so that this sector can open up and we can embrace all aspects of tourism, starting with, with local tourism, uh, domestics, but immediately moving towards tourism within the region. So SADC, for example, or intra-Africa, uh, but at the same time, recognizing that a lot of our business tourism comes from all over the world. Welcome to our first session uh, of The Other Side, talking to industry leaders around key topics uh, and issues that are prevalent and relevant to us today. Our first session is around hospitality and travel. Uh, we have, uh, or we welcome Roger Foster, uh, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Airlink, and uh, Marcel von Olak, who is the CEO uh, of Toko Sun Hotels. So it's really a privilege to have you guys with us this afternoon. You really have been uh, at the forefront of the crisis, sure wearing some battle scars. But I think for all of us, we never envisaged, certainly in our risk planning, uh, an environment where we would have a complete shutdown um, and facing uh, potential scenarios with zero revenue. You know, for you guys, you've got infrastructure that spans multiple regions, assets, uh, complexity of operations. Roger, maybe you can just give us a sense as to, you know, what was the most challenging part around bringing your whole infrastructure and op operations to a halt and, uh, and ways in which you managed that? Nick, thank you. The, the uncertainty has been the biggest challenge from our perspective. Our business has been confronted by serious issues previously. For example, 9-11, a SARS virus pandemic uh, and the financial contagion of 2008. We've also been confronted by a part closure of our business previously uh, by the South African Civil Aviation Authority in December 2009, when our entire fleet of our smaller type aircraft, the 29-seater Jetstream 41 aircraft, was grounded. These were all significant events in the life of Airlink. But with careful strategizing and swift agility and absolute commitment, we were on all of these occasions able to overcome and we emerged stronger and leaner on all counts. None of these entailed an indefinite lockdown, the closure of all international borders and a total travel ban for all travel other than for repatriation purposes. As things stand, we are precariously now in level three of the lockdown easing program, and we're at phase two of the reintroduction of limited domestic air services for essential business travel purposes only. Yet most businesses have prohibited all business travel other than travel that is essential to the continuity of business. And as such, the business travel market is presently minuscule. So in short, this is the first time we've ever been confronted, certainly in my 28 plus years of being here as the CEO of, of Airlink. And as far as I know, the first time in the history of aviation that there has been a total shutdown of all air travel in South Africa and also in most parts of the world. So this is a first for us. Marcel, maybe from uh, your perspective, having hotels uh, across all of SA and, and into Africa, you know, how you've dealt with dealing with a complete shutdown of infrastructure, as well as uh, staff and, and managing that during a, a period or relatively short period of time to having to implement it and then during the lockdown phases. Yes, I mean, the, the hardest part is 
the speed with which it came. You know, we, we had a little bit of warning because we could see the bookings dropping off the system for April, May, June from about early March to mid-March. But it just accelerated so quickly. And we've, we've never seen anything like it where you sort of start saying, well, maybe we can consolidate business into certain units. The regulations changed on you literally in the space of 24 hours, 48 hours. Could sell alcohol, couldn't sell alcohol, could be open, couldn't be open. And then all of a sudden announced the shutdown and you had to close 103 hotels in three days. So I guess the toughest part of the whole thing was, was shutting it down quickly. Uh, you also had to realize very quickly that this was going to be, you, you were going to zero revenue for at least three months. That, that we knew. So you had to get your cash burn down very fast. And, and it's something we've never done before. So it changes from, well, how can you do something more efficiently and where can you save a cost to literally switching off everything. And, and the analogy I use is like switching off a really big water pipe. So you shut down the big costs fast. Anything that's variable, there's no purchasing, there's no capex, etc. But then you've got to go and close every last little tap. You've got to deal with every supplier, suspend contracts, deal with your landlords. You've got to, your staffing is, is, is your single biggest thing. I mean, it's our number one expense. So in the space of, of I think three days, we got basically agreements with 4,400 staff to go on layoff and reduce pay where everybody signed up and agreed to a process. Now, I mean, you just learn as you go along because you've never ever never ever done something like that and then you slowly started dealing with things like quarantine hotels where you'd open up one or two or you'd bring in uh, some of the uh, like roger was referring to you had expatriates who had to be people who had to get expatriated via the airlines and that sort of thing and you dealt with that but the, the toughest part of this was just how fast it happened and we've got some hotels not to be flippant about it that don't actually have door locks because they're not designed to close and you've got to close the doors so, so, I mean, taking that into account where, and who knows whether this is, uh, is going to be more of a regular occurrence going forward, but in terms of your risk management procedures, just how you think about scenario planning from a liquidity perspective going forward, how are you going to build what's happened over the last three months in, into some of that thinking? The, the strength of your balance sheets, the liquidity, you know, the period of time that you'd look to have cash flow to reserves, because who knows as to whether this can, you know, this too shall pass, as, as I think we all know, but in 12, 24 months' time, it hits us again. How are you thinking around the structure of your balance sheet and, uh, and cash flow? So, look, what, what I really decided up front is no business can last two or three years without cash flow. So, so you've got to have a, what's the worst case scenario you can survive? How long can you go with no revenue, realistically still keeping staff either on low or, or no pay, um, without actually defaulting on it. A lot of that is in, in discussion with the banks as to what covenants are they prepared to waive, how long are they prepared to roll up interest, how long are they prepared to give you waivers on capital payments and so on. But th there is no scenario where you come to, whether it's your bankers, your shareholders, anybody, and say, look, we're not going to be in business here for five years. Uh, we'll see you after that. It doesn't exist. So that's like saying, well, how are you going to survive World War II when they destroy all the, the cities? You can't survive that. So we've had to we've had to look at a little bit of a short-termist approach where we say the cash burn is down where every 20, 30 million we get gives us more time. If you can last another three months, six months without burning into your cash reserves, that is a victory in itself. And we, we've pretty much been able to do that. So, so we were looking at, say, a 70 million a month cash burn. We, we've come through three months where we have probably only burnt about 60 million cash across the three months, but we've been able to collect debtors and we've been able to get concessions and so on. But that doesn't mean you can do it in the next three months that follows after that. So there is, might sound trite, there is no long-term plan for, for not having revenue. There's only a short-term plan that says this has to turn 
by the time we get to summer, you have to start being able to trade again. You have to have some sort of return to normality. Now, that normality will be completely different to what we knew normality was before. In, in our business, we know that's going to be lower occupancies. It's going to be lower average rates. And to achieve that, we have to have a much lower cost base so that we can make money with substantially reduced revenues from where we were. But there's no scenario that says you can survive years without any revenue. That, that's, a, that's an impossibility. So, Roger, when you look at your business in pre-COVID or on a like-for-like basis relative to last year, just capacity-wise, um, I mean, what are you trading at relative to what the norm was before? And, you know, looking forward on that basis and the period of time that we might get to normal capacity and, and route levels and capacity uh, in terms of passengers, do you think that there's going to be a, a structural change to the way your business runs going forward and, and aviation and leisure travel and, and business travel? Nick, absolutely. I, I think the first, uh, the first answer, the first question that you asked, uh, the answer is uh, you know, things are pretty bleak at the moment in, in air travel. Um, you know, the, uh, the limited um, concessions that have been made by, by government to allow uh, air travel to resume during the months of June and so far July have resulted in only about 3.3% 3, 3 um, of the same number of passengers last year as to this year. So this year we're carrying 3.3% of the number of passengers that there were last year. And this is not just, you know, the Air Link number, this is the industry-wide number. And, you know, just uh, echoing what Marcellus just said, the other aspect of that is that um, that number of passengers uh, are being carried on 5.6% of the capacity that we had last year. So straight away, there is a clear indication that there is far too much capacity as regards uh, demand. So there's oversupply in the market at the moment and economics 101, um, when you have oversupply, typically the prices fall. And for good reason. Also, one needs to entice the market back again. So typically, the other side of the equation is on the uh, achieved fare or yield. We're currently getting only about 25% of what we got last year this time. And that's uh, something that we need to pay attention to. Obviously, that situation is not sustainable into the future. So what we've got to try and do is get the, the market to resume or to return to normality as quickly as we possibly can. And there's some radical structural changes that are needed. I mean, obviously, one can't uh, continue in a situation where there is oversupply and under demand. So one of two things, either way, either we have to, as, as, as an industry, and, uh, you know, there's no way that you can collude on this because of the antitrust legislation. So we don't talk to our competitors, but the industry will probably go through a capacity rationalization process, which is probably going to be natural, where whatever the market is, once it's been enticed back again by low fares, and I think it's a fantastic time for customers to be flying around at the moment because of the low fares, 25% of what they were a year ago. Um, but once this normalizes, the fares will have to harden um, and airlines, in order to survive, are going to have to cut their costs right through to the bone, which is something that we're already busy with at the moment. Cash is king. Uh, we can carry on trading at a loss for a period of time. And as it is, um, you know, all airlines are consuming equity. Uh, we have to just make sure that we have liquidity and it's something that we've um, we've reached out to our shareholders about to make sure that we've got liquidity facilities in place and the shareholders trust and uh, have confidence in the in the ability of the business uh, to resuscitate and get back into the new normal market wherever that is, whatever it's going to be and whenever it's going to be. And at the same time, we've been able to raise uh, some working capital facilities to help us to ramp up into the new market as it starts to return. 
At this stage, uh, you asked the question about the permanent structural change to our business, judging from the experience in other parts of the world where the spread of the pandemic preceded its presence here. It seems inevitable that travel patterns will change in the short to medium term. And, and that's what we need to contemplate. You know, IATA, the International Air Travel Association, published a very, very interesting survey last week that took snapshots of travelers and they took it, the traveler sentiments in three waves, one in February, one in April, and one just recently in June. The sample was about 4,700 customers. Uh, it was split basically 50-50 into leisure and business travel. And there were some interesting things that came out of it. Uh, I don't like just quoting statistics and, and numbers, but 83% of all of those customers that were surveyed, and you know, importantly, this is in the first world, this is in developed economies, 83% were concerned about contracting COVID-19 whilst on board an aircraft or experiencing the air travel value chain. 65% believed that they could be infected whilst on board an aircraft only. Only 12% of the customers would be ready to jump back into an aircraft immediately without any concerns about, um, uh, about contracting COVID-19 whilst on board an aircraft. And 83% of those that were in the survey elected to postpone their travel uh, requirements until a later point, uh, sometimes even more than a year into the future. And 5% of those that were surveyed are unlikely to travel again ever. And those are all stark realities that we need to be paying attention to. And obviously, we need to be trimming our business down in terms of the capacity and supplying the demand uh, according to the new demand. So, Roger, I mean, on that theme, I think there generally is a significant reluctance to go into whether it's concentrated areas of people or, you know, around airports or being in a confined space like an aircraft or even for that matter, Marcel, uh, you know, hotels. In terms of the mindset um, of a traveler and whether that be business or leisure, in offering your service and your product and, and dealing with um, the concern of a traveler, operationally, how do you think you're going to change the model before we get to a stage where you've got immunity through density of the population uh, and infection rates or whether there's a, there's a vaccine? Because I think certainly until you get to that point. Uh, I think people are going to have a natural hesitation to travel as we did historically. And whether you engage at a hotel reception or, uh, you know, sitting on an aircraft, how do you see your business evolving to, to deal with that and being able to put the mindset of, uh, of a traveler at ease? So, look, I think we had an interesting challenge when we started opening for business travel. So we haven't got to leisure yet, but we started opening for business travel. And... I remember quite clearly sitting with, with our marketing people, we had two choices. You could either hammer the message of safety and the protocols that we've put in place for screening, sanitizing, etc., or you take those that you not take it for granted, but you you know you've done those. So so we've put together an it's about a hundred and twelve page document that deals with the protocols to, that we, we needed to put in place to be able to open in the first place and that we needed to make sure that both our staff and our, our guests were as safe as they could be considering they are traveling and they are interacting with others. But what we did instead of focusing on that, we focused on hospitality because the travel experience I think is going to be relatively traumatic from the minute you leave home. A, people are going to be nervous. Then you've got to get through paperwork trauma at the airport. Then you've got, I mean, domestic travel is quite hard at the best of times and and what we wanted to focus on was the message of hospitality. Come back to the Beverly Hills, 
because you remember how wonderful it is and we will still give you that. We will give you that warmth, that hospitality, and yes, you will be safe because we will put the protocols in place. So when you get there, there are masks, there is screening, the food delivery is different, there's not the open buffets. All the things that you would look for are that, but trying to create that feeling of warmth and hospitality for the customer because you're going to be nervous as a guest anyway. I then think that in time that that fear factor will settle. People will get more used to it. You know, the first time you go to a restaurant, once they open, you're going to be nervous. And if the, the waiter lets his mask slip down a little bit, you're going to give him a strict talking to, etc. But But you will get used to whatever this new normal of life is that we have, and you will become less fearful, and particularly the longer this carries on. So we focused more on the warmth and hospitality and less on telling people how how we were changing the, the protocols because everybody's changing those protocols. I also don't think there's any competitive advantage in that. The industry has adopted a set of protocols and everybody's doing the same thing. So so what can you do to make your trip better? And that is create a warm, inviting, hospitable place to be rather than, uh, than add to the fear factor of it. So the other part that we have, I guess, an advantage on is that it's not a terribly expensive thing to do so you can, once you've put these protocols in place, you don't have to structurally change the way a hotel operates. You've got very high hygiene standards anyway. So it's in the delivery of your food, it's in changing the, the cleaning protocols around public areas and high touch points and so on. But your actual day-to-day operation is so sanitized anyway. I guess the difference was we used to keep it out of sight and maybe it'll be a little bit more insight when you're in the hotel, whereas we used to try and make housekeeping disappear. They're now sort of front and fore. But I, I don't think it'll be a. I don't think the hotel environment will be a distraction from travel. Hopefully, it'll be a an encouragement to say, look, this is actually great. If you people will want to travel, and we can give you that hospitality experience. So I mean, we've spoken a little about the the actions. Um, you know, that Marcel, you as uh, as owner and operator of hotels, and you know, Roger, operator of airline. I mean, you amongst your stakeholders, government is one. There's obviously the legislation around your environments, the impact of visas uh, around your guests and travelers. You know, government is an owner of the infrastructure, particularly through where you operate, Roger. You know, how has government interacted to date? And, you know, if if we look forward, uh, I think certainly consensus is is that this is not going to be a a short-term issue. This is with us for the, the short to medium term. What are your views around government and how, how they're viewing the crisis in, in the environment that you've got to operate and what more potentially that they could be doing, particularly around travel uh, and in your case, hospitality? Okay, thank, thank you, Nick. Um, I think let's just first have a look at um, South Africa and, and our competitivity uh, from a world point of view, because this will circle us back to, to government in a second. I think it's important to recognize that um, South Africa still has to reach the hiatus of the pandemic. And for good reason, society lives in fear of COVID-19. People are petrified to travel by air or any mode of of transportation. Uh, We need, as a collective, including government, to convince the traveling public that the risk of air travel is less than a visit to your local supermarket to do your weekly grocery shopping. And certainly, a lot less risky than any other form of public transportation. Uh, Airfares have already dropped through the floor and hospitality has already done exactly the same. So, you know, the the USP, the value proposition available to the traveling public, uh, business travelers especially, but in due course, leisure travelers as well, 
is quite phenomenal. It's, this is a first. I mean, it's never been as, uh, as affordable as this for, for tourism. What we need to do from a government perspective is get the borders open. Show South Africa is open for business, that we have a fantastic uh, hospitality, tourism and air transportation sector and allow all forms of air travel. Don't limit it just to business travel. It's time. South Africans can't travel the rest of the world. There is a domestic travel segment right now that needs to be activated and, uh, and, and Joe Public will want to be uh, mobilized into visitations for the hospitality, the fine hospitality that is um, on offer by Marcel's outfit and all of his other competing hospitality entities as well. So I, I think that that's the first thing that we need to do. Government needs to work more closely, not just with tourism, uh, but with air travel to recognize the desperation that these industries are in, but also, and more importantly, our readiness from hospitality as well as from an air transportation, the whole value proposition perspective, the value chain is all now ready and able. The uh, protocols are there to, to make it safe from, um, from a mitigation of the transmission of COVID-19 perspective. So that's the one aspect. I don't believe that government has engaged enough with, with air transportation. I think that uh, the whole industry is seen as a segment. Um, the airlines are, uh, from government's perspective, um, a, a, a more uh, insignificant aspect of air transportation. The whole value chain from government's perspective comprises many government installations, state-owned enterprises from air traffic control, so air traffic navigation services, to the airports companies, to the Civil Aviation Authority, to the Aeronautical Authority, which happens to be the Department of Transport, and obviously also to the state-owned enterprise airline businesses. And all of those seem to be safely protected by, by government in terms of government reaching out and making sure that financially all of those businesses are robust and um, able to, to survive the, the storm of the COVID-19 pandemic, which I think is awesome. Uh, but what about the private sector? The private sector, as it stands at the moment, uh, there's no reaching out by government, uh, not only to facilitate private sector funding, we haven't heard anything from government, no indications whatsoever have been made, but at the same time, government needs to, to pay special attention to the appeals by the airlines specifically. And I don't know that we're being heard to the extent that we need to be. We, we are working hand in glove with hospitality through various organizations like Tourism Business Council of South Africa, where airlines have a representation, but hospitality has a bigger representation. So we do join those forums and we are appealing to government uh, through various lobbying groups, especially those forums, to say, please listen to us. We're ready. The, the risk of COVID-19 transmission through our value chain is, is, has already been mitigated. And the same thing with hospitality. So this is an area where we need to work together to continue our appeal to government to be heard so that this sector can open up and we can embrace all aspects of tourism, starting with, with local tourism, uh, domestics, but immediately moving towards tourism within the region. So SADC, for example, or intra-Africa, uh, but at the same time, recognizing that a lot of our business tourism comes from all over the world. For example, there's a, a big Italian aspect to the gas and oil infrastructure development up in northern Mozambique at the moment. And that needs to get there. And we need to open up the borders, not only between ourselves and Mozambique, but also between ourselves and the rest of the world. So we can carry those passengers from wherever they want to go to, to wherever they are going to go to. 
So from wherever to wherever, and obviously through the infrastructure that we've got our airports and our airlines and the hospitality sector as well. Marcel, I mean, this is uh, obviously going to have a significant uh, impact across uh, the broader industry. I think the question certainly that a lot of us have, and, and I don't think it's unique to you know either the hospitality or, or the aviation industry, is the landscape across certain sectors is going to change. And, you know, from a stakeholder perspective, I mean, if you take hospitality, um, the stakeholders that are suppliers or the value chain into that industry. Uh, you know, if there is a shift, if there's a consolidation, uh, if there's some of your competitor base that, that doesn't make it through, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to understand what does it look like on the other side? What's your views around consolidation uh, and, and what the landscape looks like in, in six to 12 months and, and how you see that changing? So the one difficult part about hotels is when they go bust, they don't go away. You can't return them to the manufacturer and say, please dismantle this and get it out of the system. So hotels, you know, there's a little bit of converting into resi, maybe a little bit of converting into retirement homes. But by and large, if a hotel business goes bust, there's the next buyer who then buys it at a lower price, has a new capital structure and carries on going. So I don't see stock coming out of the system. I do see a complete stop of new supply coming into the system other than if it was virtually built by the time the, the pandemic hit. And that's good because we were fast approaching a bit of ridiculous oversupply that was coming in, largely driven by the international operators making all sorts of management contract promises. And we've seen them bail from, from hotels pretty quickly here. And property developers had empty buildings and didn't know what to do with them. So they figured, well, hotels was a good idea if you couldn't fill it with office or something else. And that, that, that part's gone. So, so from a, a supply point of view, the bad news is we get what we've got, we've got. I don't think we're going to get more is the good news. Consolidation or not, you know, in our, in our case, there's not a hell of a lot out there that we don't have a representation in. So could there be some consolidation? There could. But quite frankly, the, the hospitality fund was probably the biggest acquisition we ever did in hotels before. And I don't think there's too much out there unless you're buying up small individual properties. There's City Lodge that, that has to go through a rights issue and so on. And, and I think they're going to, they are having quite a tough time of it. But I don't see too much in consolidation. The interesting part for me is the supply chain coming in your, your source market of your hotels. So what I'm not certain about is who comes out stronger from this being direct bookings coming to people like ourselves and, and other hotels, which we're seeing at the moment is the as much as what it's on reduced demand. Corporates are coming to us directly versus the online travel agents and some of the intermediaries that were there before. So I think you're going to find an aspect of direct booking in that reduced market. You're going to have lower occupancy probably lower rates, but you're going to have a lot more direct booking, which will take some of the channel costs out, which is quite important to us. And secondly, I think you're going to find in the international inbound, I can't say I think you're going to know, I'm not sure what's going to happen between the sort of free-for-all that was the OTAs and businesses like the DMCs, the, the destination management companies, who looked after their guests at the time of the pandemic. You had, you had uh, DMCs with three or 4,000 guests in the country. They got them out. If you were in the country based on a booking through booking.com, they didn't help you get out. I'm not sure how those dynamics are going to change in the industry going forward. Are people going to look for more personalized direct booking or are they going to just go through the mass? It's easier on the web. I'll just do it like that. And I think in that space, there's going to be a lot more consolidation and change because they don't involve infrastructure. They generally involve IT and relationships. And I think you're going to see more change in channels than you're going to see in actual physical infrastructure on the ground. 
I mean, Roger, I think obviously with aviation at the moment um, and the question around consolidation, which of the carriers are going to be operating looking forward? I mean, earlier today, uh, SAA creditors uh, approved the business rescue plan. You know, looking forward, how, how do you see uh, the SA landscape from an aviation and carrier perspective and, and consolidation, you know, over the next six to 12 months and what it looks like on the other side? Um, Nick, I, I believe there is far too much capacity in the short to medium term. If one goes back to pre-COVID-19, before the pandemic, um, and look at, at the capacity in the current market, 5.6% of what was there before, and the take-up of that capacity, as I indicated earlier on, uh, only 3.3% of what was there before. And I mean, obviously, we're at the beginning of the resumption of, of air travel, so it's going to take quite a while to, to return to the new normal, whatever that's going to be. But I do believe that there isn't going to be space in the market. The market will not be able to absorb all of the capacity that was there pre-COVID. And one just has to look around the world and have a look at, at um, aircraft owners and lessors and aircraft operators at the extent to which aircraft have been parked all over the world. Or just go and have a look at our Tambo International Airport and have a look at the number of aircraft that are parked on the ground here. Not all of those aircraft are going to get up and fly again. So in my opinion, in the short term and in the medium term, there needs to be some consolidation and some rationalization. And the question is, how does that happen? And yes, it's, it's very important that um, the national carrier, South African Airways, has had its business rescue plan approved by the creditors and government seems to have committed to funding the rescue plan. So it looks like South African Airways is going to be a key stakeholder in the industry going forward. Uh, and I think that that's right. It does bring South Africa into contact and communication with the important source markets around the world, North America, the UK, Europe, Australasia, and so on. And I think it will have a rightful place. The big question is, once the state-owned enterprise has established itself or re-established itself in its rightful place in the market, what about the rest of the industry? And the rest of the industry are going to have to work around it and fill up the gaps, bearing in mind that, uh, you know, one way or the other, the, the national carrier is funded by the state, if you like, subsidized by the state historically, and hopefully that doesn't continue in the, in the future, but the private sector has to compete with that. So the private sector has to be more agile, more effective, and more efficient in order to, to sustain in that highly contested uh, space. But one way or the other, there needs to be rationalization. Capacity has to be taken out of the market, capacity that was there to pre-COVID-19. And I think that you'll find that that is the trend throughout the world. IATA predicted that uh, some 40% of the world's aircraft that existed pre-COVID-19 are not going to be flying again. So some 60% will, will return to service over time. In the short term in South Africa, that seems to be around 5 or 6%. And once there is a take-up of that capacity, and then obviously uh, the capacity will increase in accordance with demand. So supply to demand, uh, once demand starts picking up. But the only way demand can start picking up again is once, um, once leisure travel and international tourism, both leisure and business travel, is, is, is available again. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be on the immediate horizon. We don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but uh, in due course, we will find out. Certainly, we're hoping that it happens in the third, the final quarter of this year, or at the very latest, sometime during the first quarter of 2021. Maybe just uh, to, to finish off, a last question for both of you. You know, this is obviously impacts, whether it's lenders on the supply side, on the demand side, one of the key areas uh, and focus is around insurance and uh, business interruption insurance. So there's just been 
a judgment given around policies uh, and validity in terms of the claims. Uh, I mean, Marcel, your views around that judgment and uh, I suppose hospitality industry as a, as, a, as a whole on the back of that judgment, potentially what do you see taking place there? I suspect these, these things are going to go on for a very long time. And if you're relying on business interruption to keep you alive, I think you're stuffed. <laughs> so, and we've got obviously big claims for us out to the insurers, and I expect they're going to fight every every inch of the way, no matter what judgments come. Everything's going to be appealed. Every little trick in the book is going to be taken to to not pay out the actual cash. So insurance is unlikely to keep you alive in the, in the medium term. You're going to have to talk to your bankers. You're going to have to make sure your own liquidity plans are in place. And long term, we, we say, look, we'll keep up that good fight and we're going to make sure that we, we get what's due to us out of it, but it's recovering cash later down the line. We're not relying on it for our short-term liquidity because we know what insurers are like. And I guess that that's, banks are great to borrow from and when you've got times like this, you really got to work closely with them because that is where your liquidity is. No one is going to step in and, and save us unless unless we, we work it through ourselves. Well, we, we don't really have business interrupt, interruption insurance in the aviation sector. It's not unheard of, but it's practically regarded as being unaffordable, mainly because of the other operational, the intrinsic operational risks associated to operating aircraft. So, you know, it's certainly not something that we can rely on. We don't have it. And, you know, what we've got to do is look for our liquidity elsewhere as well. So firstly, our shareholders, well, perhaps even before that, Cash conservation, which is something that we've been actively pursuing uh, since the declaration of the state of national disaster by the president in March. And then obviously since the lockdown, we've been in hibernation since then just to con conserve cash. It's a bit unfortunate from a staffing point of view because it doesn't tell most of our staff being on unpaid leave over this period of time, which is very difficult, obviously, from a, an emotional point of view and also from a social responsibility towards our staff perspective makes things quite difficult. So we don't rely on business interruption insurance, but we, we do rely on our ability to be frugal and conserve cash, and then obviously to raise additional liquidity, both through our shareholders and through our lenders. And we have accomplished that. So I would like to say we sorted far from that. You know, our, our future depends on how quickly the market can come back. As Marcel said earlier on, you know, you can run a business at a loss for a period of time, but you can't run a business indefinitely at a loss. And certainly you can't run a business for a single day without cash. So our focus has been on cash and on the preservation of our balance sheet, uh, the maintenance of, of equity as best as, uh, as we possibly can. And uh, to that end, we've also been able to negotiate dispensations from our key stakeholders. And um, I'm very pleased to say that uh, in all instances, our stakeholders remain fully committed to and on board um, the business venture going forward. For the consumer, and whether it's business uh, or whether it's leisure, once we come out of this, do you, do you see this crisis from a, a pricing perspective or cost and affordability uh, of hospitality and, uh, and air travel uh, being for the benefit, i.e. Uh, cheaper, or do you see it being more expensive in the long run based on the dynamics you see playing out? Certainly in hotels, I think you're going to have two markets. For the bulk consumer, most people in South Africa, I think you're going to get cheaper hotels, and I think you're going to get pro proper good value in travel. Everyone's going to have to reduce their cost base and be able to operate at lower rates. I think there's an element of travel that is the real top end part, which has always been completely price insensitive. And I think that part will still boom. It involves large space. I guess in the airline scenario, it's the first class cabin versus the back. The price is not the issue. It's how much space have you got to yourself. When you've got a 250 square meter villa on an island, price is not the issue and social distancing isn't your problem. 
But for the majority of the industry, you're going to have, uh, I think, from the consumer, you're going to get great bargains. We think in the shorter term, it's going to be much more affordable to travel by air, mainly because of uh, oversupply and under demand. And once that normalizes, when then, I mean, obviously, airlines uh, also have to make ends meet. And uh, air transportation traditionally has been a finely margined business. You know, even in the good times, you know, you're achieving a margin of somewhere between five and seven and a half percent. And that's regarded as being excellent at the moment. Obviously, the margins are all negative. So once they normalize, we'll get a blend of destinations. We have some high end destinations, high end tourism destinations. That includes some of the business tourism destinations, like, for example, the the gas and oil in northern Mozambique, but also some very high-end leisure destination and destinations. And these include the likes of the enclave of private lodges around the Hoodsprate area, the Skukuza area, Sabi Sand, uh, the Okavango swamps, Kasani, and so on and so forth. And the, those travelers are, your high-end travelers, far less sensitive to price. And we think that they will come back in due course, but that due course is not in the immediate term. We think that that will probably take at least a year before that travel starts to resume to a new normal level. Uh, but when it does, then obviously that's um, the area where we can achieve higher yields on those routes. Traditionally, we have been able to achieve that. So we look forward to the resumption of um, the diversity of destinations that Airlink can offer, 55 throughout the sub-region. Um, and when all of that gets restored, then um, we're quite comfortable and confident that the business will resume as it did pre-COVID-19 obviously with a cutback of capacity commensurate with the new market. Gentlemen, Roger, Marcel, thank you so much for your time uh, and insight uh, into your industries, which is certainly front of mind when you consider the crisis and, uh, and some of the sectors that have taken it head on. I think uh, your insights, uh, not only for our corporate clients, but uh, certainly our private clients and understanding uh, you know, what the landscape looks like you know, for, for business or leisure travel going forward. I can certainly say, uh, you know, Marcel, I uh, look forward to being able to staying in one of your hotels and, and Roger flying on, on one of your planes. I'm certainly getting cabin fever uh, in this environment, but uh, this too shall pass. But again, thank you so much uh, for joining us on, uh, on the first series um, of The Other Side. Um, thought leadership from uh, leaders and, and captains of industries. It really is appreciated. And uh, thanks very much and look after yourself and, uh, and stay safe. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.